Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business, technology, and media in Asia. The show is sponsored by IdealWorkspace.com, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desks. Check out their latest smart adjustable standing desk at aspirus.co, A-S-P-I-R-U-S dot C-O, and linkshus.com, where you can sell your products everywhere. Hi, Tim. Hi, Bernard. Thanks how, for having me on. How are you doing? Fantastic. I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to chatting to you again. Yes, and you are on the show again. And the last time we talked about Foxconn Group, and ever since then, you have changed role. I think you have changed from a reporter role now to a columnist writing your opinions in, and perspectives in Bloomberg Get Fly. So what does the new role entail? Well, that's right. After 10 years of writing news stories uh, as a reporter, I switched to being a columnist for what we call Gadfly, which is a new opinion and analysis part of Bloomberg. So the idea is for me to look at the technology industry in Asia and, you know, really analyze and look at what are some of the issues that might not have been otherwise thought of. Look into the financial side, of course, we're very big on the finances of the, the tech industry in Asia and shine a light on things that people might have not otherwise noticed or, or considered when they're uh, considering the deal and the business of, of technology in Asia. I, I guess the experience is very different because I know that the last day you actually managed to catch the Foxconn chairman, Terry Go, right? That's right. Yeah, the whole approach for the new columnist thing will be very much focused on, you know, more analysis and opinion. But uh, I'll, I'll still keep in touch with people like Terry Go, I hope. And then there are a couple of things I wanted to talk to you because you wrote two interesting articles since you joined Getfly. So the first one is actually, is a story that we have actually talked about previously. It's a story on Foxconn's group offer to acquire Sharp for US 5.1 billion. The question I have is what is the progress of that deal? Is the deal stalling? And is Sharp likely to sell their LCD business to Foxconn? Well, uh, it's a good question. And certainly, you know, as we're talking now, by the end of February or, or even earlier, we expect to find a final announcement. Foxconn's chairman, Terry Gore, has been very keen on buying Sharp. He's been uh, doing, trying to do this for about four years. But he does have competition in the form of a company called InkJ, Innovation Network Corp of, uh, of Japan, that's basically a fund that uh, has backing from the Japanese government. And they are also bidding to to buy Sharp and, and do various things with Sharp, possibly uh, split it up or inject uh, capital separately. There's two bidding uh, proposed, competing proposals that are that are bidding for Sharp, and there's certainly a lot of hints that you know when the news comes out, and even by the time this is broadcast, it may be Foxconn that gets it. But these talks have been going on for four years. It wouldn't be that surprising if it's delayed longer. But it seems to be that it will get get to a conclusion pretty soon. And that comes to your first article on GetFly. We talk a little bit about Foxconn's history in acquisitions and you talk about their Inolux experience. So how does that experience help you to think about what happens in this case if they acquire Sharp? basically, if that deal actually happens? Well, the whole point of Terry Gore trying to buy Sharp is to get access to the LCD business that Sharp has, as well as some of the other component businesses. But the thing is that history has shown, and this is this is analysis that's pretty much uh, public information, if you do the analysis of the big deals that Terry Gore has done for Foxconn, only a few have been very large deals. And by that, I would mean more than one billion US dollars. He's only done about four deals that large. The largest of them is Inalux, is a Foxconn group company that does LC displays. And they bought another Taiwanese company called Chime Optoelectronics. And then at the same time, Terry Gore did what has actually now been the third largest deal for the Foxconn group, where they bought another smaller display company. So it was kind of a three-in-one merger. 
And when they announced the deal between the Foxconn Group and, and Chime, the, the, the kind of unknown Taiwanese company, I mean, known in Taiwan, but unknown outside of Taiwan, the decision there was really that they should merge to get economies of scale and so forth. And Terry Gore said at the time that they'll be equal partners, that they will be in this together and that you know, he'll treat them like an equal. Well, you know, time went on and history had shown that most of the former Chime people had, had exited the company very quickly. The original name of Chime Interlock was changed to just Interlock. So Chime, the original name of the Taiwanese com- the local Taiwanese company, was dropped. A lot of the management had gone and it very much came, became a company within the Foxconn umbrella, so not really a company of equals. And then on the financial side of that, it's really one of the few companies that has been consistently unprofitable. Now, the LCD business is, is a tough one, and it's been up and down over the years. It really does go up and down like a roller coaster. But since the merger on a net-net basis over the years, it's lost more money than it's made since Terry Gore formed this merger. So it's very, very clear that Certainly in this kind of deal, the track record and the history is not on Terry Gore's side. And now he's going to try and do something similar with Sharp, not at all apparent that he'll be able to do anything different with it. Would it be much more difficult because of culture? I do think that is going to be a big problem. The fact that they started talking four years ago on Foxconn getting a minority stake uh, in Sharp, they were only bidding for like 10% at that time, and they couldn't even close that deal. The people from Sharp, you know, it's a Japanese company with a lot of history behind it. They are very conservative towards foreign investment, any type of outside investment. The idea of a Taiwanese company coming along and, you know, even investing a small stake, let alone buying the whole thing, was really quite a culture shock to them. And since then, they've been talking and talking for years. And Terry Gore himself has said publicly that he was fooled in his negotiations with Sharp. Now, that's the first round of negotiations back four years ago. So the fact that they don't seem to see eye to eye, they don't seem to really have the same vision for the company is going to be quite a challenge because if Terry Gore does buy Sharp and take it over, he not only has to deal with the very mechanics of running a company, efficiency, production, operations, he has to deal with people. Right. Running a company is all that human. Of course, there's separate languages, but there's separate cultural uh, issues involved. Japanese employees are, rel- are paid relatively higher than Taiwanese and Chinese employees within Foxconn. There's very much, you know, a, a, a culture of affecting the elders, people who have been there for like for life. They're lifetime workers with lifetime pensions. There's a lot of costs involved, and so that hierarchical structure is something that uh, is also a little bit different to the way you know Foxconn and Taiwanese companies work. And so trying to meld the two will be quite a cultural challenge. Recently, you have a second article, I think it was released yesterday, and you talk about Asia's best performing tech stocks, actually Taiwanese. I guess there are a couple of companies like Pegatron. What's the reason behind this? Or are they just limited to the hardware and manufacturing business? Yeah, well, it's, it's a little bit surprising and uh, counterintuitive that the Taiwanese technology stocks would be outperforming for this year. That's, you know, since January 1 this year. Because, of course, we know of Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent. They're also among the big uh, Asian technology stocks. And, and they've really, you know, investors have had a bit of a love affair with those stocks over the last few years. They certainly get a lot of headlines. Alibaba is always in the headlines. Baidu as well. Tencent is never forgotten. But actually this year, the real winners so far, you know, up until mid-February at least, has been companies that 
supply the components. The things that are not so sexy, they're a little bit dowdy and, and, and maybe considered boring compared to something like Baidu or Sony, but they make the fundamental components that go into products like iPhones, like TVs, like tablets, like all sorts of electronic devices. Pegatron is one. They, they actually manufacture devices for Apple, as we know. Then there's other companies like Taste Tech, which is actually used to be part of or is part of the Pegatron group. It used to be part of Pegatron. It was spun off. They do the metal casings for many devices, including iPhones. Another one that's not that well known is a company called Vanguard International Semiconductor, VIS. It's invested by TSMC and is a subcontractor for TSMC in the semiconductor space. And they've also done very, very well this year because, again, they supply some of the the very important but little known chips that go inside devices, such as the chips that power, manage the power in a, in a device or manage the display within a device. It's not sexy. It's not cutting-edge technology, but every device needs it, and Vanguard is actually supplying those products. So that's why we're seeing a lot of you know rise in these stocks this year in Taiwan. It's almost like an, a defensive play because there's a lot of uncertainty globally and certainly regionally in the tech space. So people are buying into these stocks because it's considered kind of a safe bet. People are always going to buy gadgets. That's pretty interesting. It seems that also Apple seems to be also the core driver because most of these companies are more or less captive to Apple. Am I right to say so? Well, I mean, Apple is still one of the largest, if not the largest smartphone makers out there. They're not the largest by units, but when you consider their products, sell for a much much higher price on a revenue basis, they're very, very big. But, you know, a lot of these companies supply not only to Apple. There's very few companies that can really survive on supplying only to Apple. So, you know, they supply to Samsung and to Xiaomi and to Lenovo and to Huawei and all these other big smartphone makers out there. And it's very important for them, if they even if they do manage to land Apple, they have to diversify beyond Apple because there's more than one uh, player in the market and they have to try and address the whole market. And that comes to our main subject of the day and that's the reason why I needed you to come here because you're probably one of the few people who is very proficient with a company called the TSMC Group or otherwise known as the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company. It is a dual listed company in Taiwan Stock Exchange and NYSE. Market cap approximately is about 109 billion in NYSE, more than 35k employees and headquartered in Shinchu, Taiwan and founded in 1987 by a founder named Maurice Chang. Other than that, they are also into lighting and solar energy related industries. Tim, what is the mission and vision of TSMC and what is it set up to do from the very start? Well, TSMC was set up essentially by the government, a semi-government think tank or industrial uh, organization called ITRI, Industrial Technology Research Institute, which is actually based in the Shinju Science Park where TSMC is based. And back in the 80s, the Taiwanese government really did want to move into technology. They're already moving into plastics. You know, everyone knows about made in Taiwan cheap plastic toys but they wanted to upgrade. So they were moving to electronics. And they realized that semiconductors was going to be an area for them to move into. And so they tapped a Chinese-born American who recently uh, essentially retired from Texas Instruments called Morris Chung. Now, a lot of people don't realize this. Morris Chung is actually not Taiwanese. He carries an American passport that was born uh, in China, in Shanghai. But he was basically, uh, you know, lured to Taiwan to set up this company, SMC. And since then, they've basically grown to be what is known as a contract foundry, a chip foundry. In much the same way that Foxconn is the contract manufacturer of, of iPhones and a lot of other devices. So a company like Apple will bring the, the product design to Foxconn and help them make it. TSMC does 
pretty much the same thing. And of course, it's very complicated stuff. It's not so labor intensive. It's very technology intensive. It's very capital intensive. It takes a lot of money to buy this equipment. Their factories, billions of dollars each. They're spending 10 billion US dollars a year for the last three or four years. So they're spending a lot of money to keep driving and building this this business. But they've been doing it for, for quite a few decades. They weren't Initially, the clear leader, there was competition from others, such as UMC, a, a fellow Taiwanese company, also there in Shinju. But, you know, in the last 15, 20 years, they've really taken the lead by spending a lot of money on the technology, really focusing on meeting clients' needs. And to this day, their, their customer list is really the who's who of technology, such as Apple, Qualcomm, Broadcom, NVIDIA, and so forth. Pretty much every chip company out there, even Intel, surprisingly enough, outsources some of its chips to TSMC. So everybody somehow has a connection to TSMC. We know Maurice Chang, but who are actually the key executives of TSMC? Currently, there are two co-CEOs, Mark Liu and CC Wei. So what do they do in this business? Well, the big concern for the company and for investors and, and really everyone involved was the fact that Maurice Chang was both chairman and CEO. And quite a few years ago, about a decade ago, he tried to hand over the CEO role to an executive and it, and it kind of failed. He, it, it lasted for a couple of years. And then eventually that, that CEO was, was kicked out of that role and Morris Jung took the CEO role back. And so for, for another few years, he then stayed chairman and CEO. But, but Jung is, is, is into his 80s now. He's probably the oldest chairman of, of a company, of, certainly of a technology company around. And at the time, he was probably the oldest CEO of any company. But since then, as you point out, he's handed over the CEO positions to C.C. Wei and Mark Liu, who are long-timers at TSMC. They're both engineers by background. They're, they're really very smart people, really know the industry, really know the engineering behind TSMC. They're the ones who are running the company day to day. But one thing that, that Morris Jung himself pointed out when he was kind of handing over the, the CEO role to these two other gentlemen was he said that there is no such thing as a non-executive chairman. So he made it very, very clear to investors and, and to customers and really the, the world outside that he's still going to be involved. And to this day, he is still very involved in the company. He's not a chairman who's sitting on a beach or, or playing golf every day. He's very much involved in the company. He turns up to the uh, the quarterly investor conferences and, and says his piece, but he is slowly uh, delegating more and more of the role to these, these other two. So does he oversee the strategy while the Mark Liu and CC Wei are both more focused on the execution and the implementation? of the various major projects within TSMC? Yes, very much so. Very much so. He's still involved in execution because for, for a company like TSMC, strategy is execution and execution is strategy. They're a company that really does only one thing. You mentioned, for example, they're in solar. They actually have recently decided to get out of solar. They dabbled in it for a while. They thought that solar would be an area they could move into. There's similar kinds of technologies and a little bit of technology overlap between doing solar, you know, photovoltaic solar cells and semiconductors, but they've since decided that's not an area they want to be in, so they're actually getting out of that business. So essentially, they're, they're one product company or they're, they're one service company, and that is simply to make chips to the designs of their clients. It's a very simple business model when you think about it, but it's very complicated. It's all about execution. It's all about being able to deliver the, the leading edge technology manufacturing at an efficient rate, at a good cost, on time, with good yields. 
and that is all execution. And so that's the strategy. The strategy is the execution. And so what are the core competency of TSMC in the technology and semiconductor foundries? I guess, where, which part of the chain do they operate on while working with, with chip makers like Intel or... Uh, yeah, Qualcomm, so the very basically when someone like Qualcomm decides they want to design a new processor to go on your phone, like the Snapdragon series of processors, Qualcomm doesn't have factories. And they are one of the companies that has hugely benefited from the fact that TSMC exists and the TSMC business model. Because companies like Qualcomm can be what we call fabulous. They don't need their own factory. Intel, for example, is what we call integrated device manufacturer. They design and they manufacture. But company like Qualcomm or Broadcom or, or, or dozens of other companies now, including Taiwan's MediaTek, they design the chip. They know what they want to do in the chip. They know what uh, specific functions the chip will have and what the design will be. So they start on that design process. And quite early on, they'll get TSMC involved because TSMC has a process called Design for Manufacturing. And they will get involved and they'll work together to see how can we design this chip in such a way that it will meet all the specifications that the client needs, but in such a way that it is actually relatively easy to make or easier to make than, you know, if they just design, design it without considering the manufacturing process. Because at the leading edge of technology, even with an iPhone or any other device, when you design something, you have to think, well, how am I going to make this? And that's a very, very important thing in chip manufacturing, to be able to work with the person who's going to manufacture it for you and go through the design rules, the processes and the procedures, how many steps it will take and so forth. And so it's a very close relationship and collaboration that TSMC has with its clients. And they have quite an array of their own technologies. So if someone needs some other technologies that they don't have available, such as CMOS sensors, which are used for, for sensors in things like cameras or various types of memory, there's a lot of memory cache that go onto chips, other little kind of things that will go into a chip, TSMC can help them with that, help them design that, help them find the, the technology or, or the IP or work with other partners to help a client build that into that chip. And so it's very important to TSMC that they can work with their clients and, you know, the business model is very sticky because if you've helped a client design and build the chip at your factory, it's a little bit difficult for that client to then go somewhere else and get it made somewhere else. They can do it, but they've already sunk a lot of time and energy and cost into doing it with you, so they're probably going to stick around. Is that the way how they generate revenue? I mean, we know you have mentioned a couple of customers of TSMC and they are mainly the other chip makers or maybe consumer electronics companies. Yeah, so the, the the revenue model is very much, essentially, it's, it's by wafer. Most of the time, they charge per wafer, but it's not as simple as that. It gets a bit more complicated. But the more wafers of silicon that they can they can churn out every every month, every week, every quarter, the more revenue they can get. If it's leading-edge technologies, they can charge more for that. If they add more services, they can charge more for that. But essentially, it's all about volume through their factories. And that's really the key for TSNC. So does that mean that they are actually customized to the business models of their customers as well in that case? Because each particular well, customer have their own specifications on how the chip is made, right? Yes, the business model itself is quite general, which is you bring us your design, 
we'll build it for you. You know, you build the recipe for your cake and we'll bake the cake for you. But yes, every chip is, is customized according to that, you know, that designer. So Qualcomm will have their own design for chip. They know how to design a chip at Qualcomm. MediaTek knows how to design a chip. Apple as well. But in that manufacturing process, you need to work together because one of the things that's very important for chip manufacturing is, well, and probably the most important thing is yield. For every, every wafer of chips you go through, now these wafers are, are, are 12 inches in diameter, so you know, the size of a dinner plate. And on one of those wafers, you're going to build 30, 40, 60, 100 chips on it. And you need to test it. You need to make sure that at the end of the multi-day, multi-week process, it takes a long time to build a chip. At the end of the process, you test it. Did it come out? Can it be workable? Can you use it? Or do you have to throw it away? And so you test it every step of the process or, or many, many steps of the process. You're constantly testing and testing and testing and trying to work out with the customer what went wrong. Why did it fail? At what point did it fail? Was it the manufacturing process? Was it the design process? How did, how did it not go right? And if it goes right, what did we do right? You know, was it the combination of chemicals or was it the, the procedures and the processes? So they work together to make sure they're doing it correctly. And then once you start to learn about it, especially with the new technology, they call it a ramp up. You start something new, you, you do it in small batches, small volume, you're testing, your yield isn't very good, you have to throw away a lot more than you'd like to. But as you get better at it, as you learn about it, the yield gets better and you know you throw away a lot less. And then you can start you know, basically ramping up, which means more and more volume per week to a point where you can get a really high volume and a very good yield and everybody can make a profit. But if you have a low yield and low production volume, then it's very costly because you've got a lot of equipment that you've got to pay for regardless of whether or not you use it. And so the, the business model for TSMC is to try and fill those factories as much as they can with the, the highest value, highest value product to make sure that they can pay for their fabs. After working for with so many clients, do they actually have like an open platform for people to use their foundries in semiconductor technologies or they have to actually develop the process continuously in the industry? It is a bit of both. I mean, essentially, no one could, in theory, knock on the door and say, hey, make this for us. But not everyone would. Uh, they're considered to be more expensive than a lot of others, but then they've got the best technology. So it's, for any client, it's kind of a cost-benefit analysis. You're going to go with the most expensive supplier if you've got a technology that's maybe 10 years old that someone else could do. You see, for TSMC... The real benefit for going to them is they've got the leading edge technology. Their key competitors are Samsung and Intel. Samsung, uh, as you know, they do their own chips for their own phones. They do also do chips for, for Apple. They've been doing chips for Apple for a while. Intel, of course, have been doing uh, their own chips for a long time and manufacture their own chips. But they are also competitors to TSMC in a way because companies like Qualcomm do go to Samsung more recently. For TSMC, the real competitive edge for them to get the clients to come back is not so much whether it's proprietary or open, but the fact that they've got the best, the latest technology and that they can deliver on it. So it's a mix of proprietary processes, of course. A lot of that is very, very secret and they're very, very secretive about the way they operate. For example, TSMC employees and not allowed to have smartphones in the factory because smartphones have cameras. So, you know, you can't plug the, the, you can't plug in a USB thumb drive. None of their phones have cameras on them. So you go into a TSMC factory and you, if you saw an employee, you'd see they have an old feature phone that looks like a, a 1998 Nokia because they're very careful, almost paranoid about IP leakage because their formulas, their processes 
are essentially their their competitive advantage. So to that extent, they're not so open. In fact, they're very closed. But in terms of openness, pretty much anybody could come and work with them if they're willing to you know spend the time and money. It sounds like TSMC and Apple shared very common close culture. When it comes to talking about TSMC, we always think about Apple. I mean, is the company totally captive to Apple as their main customer? I mean, recently there are rumors pointing that TSMC will gain full control of the A10 chip for the iPhone 7. Well, that is assuming that the brand is going to be called 7. Does that mean Apple prefer them over Samsung? I wouldn't say that TSMC is captive to Apple at all. In fact, Apple is a relatively new client to TSMC. Only the last few years has Apple moved away a bit from Samsung to TSMC for their core A-series processors. I mean, I would point out that a lot of, you know, every iPhone that that is out there on the market has somewhere between $8 and $15 worth of product from TSMC. They say that, you know, for every iPhone sold, TSMC gets, you know, 8 to 15 US dollars of revenue, which is not just that core A-series processor, the A8, the A9. It's also a lot of the other stuff that goes inside, such as the modem chip, the, the, the chip that uh, helps the display run and so forth. But in terms of the direct revenue from Apple to, to TSMC, no, they're not really captive to them. One of the benefits of TSMC's business model is that they have a very, very long list of customers. Their customer base is huge. It's in the dozens of important companies. So, you know, Apple maybe 8, 10, 15% of sales at max would be the component to TSMC. The other big client is Qualcomm. So between them, those two are certainly the two largest clients and losing either of them would certainly be, you know, be painful to TSMC. But not like, you know, Foxconn where they get half of their revenue from Apple. TSMC is much less reliant on any individual customer than, than many of the companies out there that are supplying to the supply chain. What's the footprint of TSMC across the world? I mean, they have different fabs located in different countries. Well, they're actually pretty much, I'm trying to think, you know, they've got some those of the US, but they're pretty much all in Taiwan in three different locations, in Shinju, in Taichung, in Tainan, so north, central, and south of Taiwan. Now, they have just announced recently plans to, to build a factory in China. They do have a factory already in China. It, it's not leading edge at all. It's, it's a little bit old using old technology, but it's fine for what they need. Not everything that TSMC does needs to be the latest technology. At their current factory in China, they're using technology that's like 10 years old. Uh, but frankly, a lot of the chips produced in the world are using, you know, 10-year-old technology because they don't need the latest technology. But the latest plans that TSMC has is to build a leading-edge factory in China in the next few years. So they will certainly expand outside of Taiwan. But right now, they're very much in Taiwan and, and they really don't have any plans to, to you know, move their base outside of Taiwan. In fact, I think they have, in two years ago, they actually signed up a multi-year agreement with the development of the ARM processors with ARM as well. So they also work with ARM in the same light? Yes. See, ARM is essentially at the heart of of pretty much every processor in in a phone these days. You know, the the Apple's A-series processors use ARM. The Qualcomm Snapdragon series use ARM. There's very few smartphones out there that are not using ARM at the core of it. See, ARM is a, a British company and they basically design for intellectual property and the core designs for the core, the very heart, the brain of a chip, and that is ARM strength. And they're very much agnostic to all of their clients. Anybody can come and license it. And to that end, because TSMC is very involved in the process of manufacturing and designing with their clients, they also then become 
an ARM licensee, and so they can use that technology and work with their own clients to help build chips. So with the recent decline in sales for TSMC over the last two quarters, uh, what's actually happening or does the company actually has to start thinking about making moves to other verticals as well? Well, I don't think they'll move to other verticals. They tried that with solar and that pretty much failed and they're, they're getting, getting getting out of it. So it's part of the industry cycle. The semiconductor industry does go through peaks and troughs and it's, it's just an inevitable part of it. Yes, sales did decline for a couple of quarters, but they're still profitable and that's important. That's really the bottom line. They're still making money and, and still quite a lot of money, enough to raise their dividend you know, to a record amount. So they're giving a lot of cash back to their investors. But it's pretty much we call a cyclical dip. And the key point there, or why did it dip, is that as we know, the global electronics industry has slowed down a bit in the last couple of years. Especially China, of course, everybody uh, is talking about the, the slowdown in the Chinese economy. And I mean, China's still growing very fast, but compared to what it was doing, it's a little bit weaker. And China is the world's largest smartphone market, you know, the world's largest PC market. So when China slows down, everybody feels it. It ripples right through the economy, and the global economy, that is. So they're feeling the pinch there. And of course, in the last two quarters, apart from the iPhone 6S, there hasn't been really that many exciting product launches, and even some would, would argue that the success, you know, being a, a kind of a, a, a half-generation cycle of their product, you know, the next one would in theory be the 7 this year, it, it didn't do necessarily as well as people might have expected, and, and TSMC was also bitten by that. So if, if anywhere in the electronics industry does show a bit of a slowdown, there's no doubt that TSMC will feel it. So does TSMC actually make any acquisitions in the market? You have spoken that they are very core to what their technology development. Have they eventually bought any companies like the way what Foxconn is trying to do with acquiring Sharp? The short answer is no. They did make one acquisition about 15 years ago. It wasn't a huge acquisition, but they did. And since then, no, they pretty much... There's no one out there that they could buy that would add anything to what they do. Because when you're buying a, another company, you got to think, well, what do they offer that I don't have? Now, is it technology that I don't have? Is it staff that I really want to hire? And we call it, you know, an acquire, which we see a lot in Silicon Valley. Is there some kind of facilities? Is there, you know, some kind of production manufacturing volume or capacity that you need? But for TSMC, they don't really want to buy capacity from anybody else. They want to build their own capacities because they want their factories set up their way, their style, in their mode of operation. So buying someone else's uh, facilities would, in, in essence, be a liability to them. Nobody else really has technology that's as good as what they've got, except for maybe Samsung or Intel. But, you know, TSMC is very, very close behind. And in terms of, you know, acquire, there's not really any group of of workers or engineers that they would love to have on board that they can't already get. So there's really no need for them right now to go out and buy any other companies or invest in any other companies. Now, they did make an investment with uh, with the Taiwanese company in solar when they were dabbling in solar. But of course, as I said, they're, they're getting out of that business. So that kind of acquisition is, is kind of a one-off. From TSMC's pers perspective, what would they be worry about in the next five years? Well, the key concerns that you know the company has expressed is really trying to find the next big thing. We've had a great run-up in the, the notebook market 15 years ago when, when Wi-Fi became a big thing and, and computers became smaller and smaller and suddenly everybody had a laptop, right? So that was big. 
And then we've seen the smartphone boom and a smaller tablet boom with the iPad, but essentially we've seen a smartphone, a mobile phone followed by a smartphone boom, and that is starting to ease off. We've still got to see a lot of growth in smartphones. We've still got China. We've still got India. And so much of the developing world you know, have not even bought their first smartphone. And remember, most of the developed world buys a new smartphone every year or two anyway. So there's still going to be growth. There's still going to be sales of smartphones. But they need to look at the next big thing. And that's things like automotive, electronics. A lot of people forget that there's probably more chips in the family garage than there are in the family living room. Because a car has a lot of chips, not just the stuff on the dashboard, but you know, for basically everything that, that a car does, the electric windows, the, the windscreen wipers, the lights that you know, decide how, to, how much you're going to dim or brighten those lights. There is a lot of chips in, in even the, the most basic of cars. And then the leading edge cars, think of something like a Tesla, a lot of chips in that. So automotive electronics is an area that will help drive TSMC into the future. The other one is the more broader category of Internet of Things, which is basically any product that can connect to the Internet is an Internet of Things. So anything from a heart rate monitor to fitness bands, we're going to see a lot in industrial usage, robots connecting to the Internet so they can you know, be monitored and reprogrammed in the home, home automation, you know, air conditioners connect to the Internet so you can turn it on and off you know, with, your, with your app on your phone. Those are all going to need chips. And it's going to be by the billion, it's going to be by the bucket load uh, of chips being required. And TSMC is certainly hoping that that'll happen because that'll be a key area for them. I can guess that would be pretty interesting because I guess Cisco was predicting something like 50 billion devices with Internet of Things by 2020. So I guess, Tim, it's always good to have you on and really getting that insight on TSMC. So help my audience, how do they find you? The best way to find me, Bernard, would be on Twitter. So that's at tculpan, T-C-U-L-P-A-N. So follow me there. Now I'm at Gadfly uh, as a columnist, so I'll be tweeting my own opinions and analysis as well as uh, you know sharing some of the interesting stories I see uh, online. So I think the best place would be Twitter. So that's T-C-U-L-P-A-N. And I'll definitely add that link to your Bloomberg column with your authorship on it. And you can find me at bleongcw or at bernardleong.com. Subscribe to us at Analyze Asia. You can also find us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Acast. And of course, tweet to us if you have any interesting feedback. So once again, Tim, really thank you for having this conversation. And I learned a lot about TSMC from you today. Thanks for having me, Bernard.